This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is the Russell Moore Podcast with our first word study through the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis, Seeking There the Kingdom of Christ. As I come to the passage that we're going to deal with uh, today, Genesis 5, 1 to 8, 19, now that's a large chunk of text, so I'm not going to read it. Uh, allowed here, but uh, encourage you to do that before we start getting into the flow of this. And the reason that we have such a large uh, chunk of text here is because all of this holds together. This is one coherent arc that we're moving through when we come to this in some ways really familiar uh, to people and in many other ways not familiar at all. A passage about Noah and the flood. I remember one time when I was preaching on this uh, very text that I had a woman in the congregation who is extremely hydrophobic, and her biggest fear is drowning, and she went into an actual panic attack. We had to have medical personnel come in and and so forth uh, because she imaginatively connected uh, with the story, and it it sent her into a panic. Well, a little bit later, she came to faith in Christ and uh, wanted to be baptized. And I know that the people who listen to this are from many, many different denominations doing things many, many different ways, but we practice uh, baptism by uh, complete immersion of a believer in water. And so she came to the waters of baptism really uh, terrified, had to to walk her through it. She did great. And she, by that point, had sort of resolved some of the panic attack uh, issues that she had. But still, she went in with a, a great deal of... Um, of fear and trepidation. And, you know, as that happened, I told her afterward, uh, I said, you know, I think that you probably understand baptism better than people who skip in and out of, uh, I've seen people in being baptized where the the minister officiating is making jokes and uh, all of this sort of thing. She actually got what was going on both in terms of Noah and in terms of baptism, that these are terrifying realities because they deal uh, with judgment and they deal with life and death. She got that and she understood that in a way that many people don't. Uh, the, the Apostle Peter, in reflecting back on this, uh, this text that we're going to be talking about today, tied these two things together. So it wasn't just arbitrarily that she was having a sense of dread in the Noah narrative and a sense of dread at baptism. In many ways, they're the same thing. So Peter, for instance, wrote in 1 Peter 3, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, uh, were uh, brought safely through water. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. It's an appeal to God for a good conscience. So the the imagery that you have in baptism is two things that we don't tend to connect very much. It's death, execution, judgment, going under the the water, uh, removes the ability to breathe, and cleansing, that there's a, a cleansing that is taking place, so much so that uh, the Apostle Peter has to say, I'm not talking about the simply the, the removal of dirt from the body. It's an appeal to God. Now, those two ideas come together again in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, where Peter is dealing with the fact that there are many people who are essentially making fun of uh, the early Christians and saying, well, you know, you keep saying that this crucified rabbi is coming back, but where is he? Everything is continuing along the same way that, that it has before. And Simon Peter points to them, to this narrative of uh, Noah and the flood, about how the, the warning was coming from God, that judgment was coming, and everything seemed to be the same. Remember, Jesus talks about this. They were marrying and giving in marriage, and everything seemed normal until suddenly there was judgment. Simon Peter says that The judgment that is coming upon the earth the next time is not by water, uh, but by fire, which he sees, again, both as judgment and as a cleansing in in the way that a forest fire comes through and uh, gets rid of uh, unhealthy underbrush and and creates a a new ecosystem. Coming out of the fire, there's a, a whole new world. So you have this sense of, of judgment and cleansing together that is also all through this account of Noah, the one who is named because he's bringing rest out of the curse of the ground and then ends up being the forerunner, the pioneer of this new creation that God is uh, bringing about. Now, again, when we think of Noah and the ark, Uh, Noah's Ark, we think of uh, Noah and the animals, Uh, often we tend to think of this in a really Disney-fied sort of uh, version because it's not uncommon to have pictures on children's uh, walls uh, with uh, little happy images of a boat with Noah and a giraffe and some elephants uh, sticking their their heads out and so forth. Uh, But actually, this is not a sweet, childlike sort of story. It's a story of judgment and in a story of judgment in really graphic terms. So you start with an assessment of uh, the reason for judgment. So essentially at the beginning of this passage, there's a building of the case as to why human culture has become Uh, has gotten to such an end point. There's wickedness, not just wickedness in terms of action, but the the Bible says in every intention of the heart. So there's an indication here of what 
proves to be true elsewhere, that judgment is usually invisible to you for a long time before it becomes suddenly visible. So if you think, for instance, of the judgment scene in Matthew 25, where Jesus is dividing the sheep from the goats, the the thing that's really remarkable about that is that both groups are stunned. Both groups are just really uh, surprised. So uh, those who are being uh, judged, sent into eternal darkness, say, when did we see you and not feed you and not clothe you and not care for you? Well, it was when you refused to do so for the least of these, my brothers. And likewise, the sheep who are uh, being uh, given the inheritance say, well, when did we ever see you and clothe you? They, they, they don't know this. They're simply carrying out um, their everyday actions and the judgment that was coming upon them was invisible until it was visible. So the, the case that's being made here is that there's this merger of light and darkness in the moral realities of humanity in a way that has reduced humanity to an almost animalistic uh, sort of uh, level. So what you see happening is a range of things. One of those things is uh, sexual immorality and maybe some form of occultism, because the text says that the sons of God took for themselves the daughters of men, and that uh, from this came the Nephilim, the the men of great renown. Nephilim, a word usually translated as giants. Um, Now, there are multiple ways that Christians and before Christians, Jews, uh, have sought to interpret this, uh, this passage. Some people would say, well, this refers to the the line of Seth, so the, the, the holy line of God, those who were obedient to God, becoming intermingled with those who were not. And there's a case that can be made for that because son of God can mean uh, kingly line. So for instance, when God says to, uh, or when Nathan says to David uh, about from God, I will be a father to him, the king, and he will be a son to me. That's part of it. But son of God can also refer to angelic beings, the sons of God uh, who who came before the throne of the Lord. We'll see later in Job and Psalms and, and, and elsewhere. So you've got a very ancient tradition uh, First Enoch and other places, speaking of this as angelic beings. So the sort of language that Jude uses of those spiritual beings who did not keep their first estate. There's, there's something that happened here that was of such renown uh, that it would have been talked about. People would have known what was, what was uh, being dealt with here. In either case, what you have is human desire and human lust transcending right boundaries that are established by God. So there is some sense 
of what God intended to be his people, abandoning their identity as his people for marriage of some sort or or procreation of, of some sort that was outside of God's design. So you have that, you have violence that's taking place. And you, you think about the way that later on, you're going to see this combination of sex and violence that we saw it before with Lamech. You, you will see it again in the account of Lot in the cities of the plain, uh, where there's uh, there's a threat of, of rape. Uh, that takes place. So this, in some way, you have just the the breakdown of human life and human civilization happening here. And everyone, the, the language isn't used, but it's really similar to what we have in Judges. Uh, there is no king in Israel, and and everyone does what is right in his own eyes. That's that's essentially what is happening here. Now, it's also true, though that in the middle of this, you have a remnant. Now, that's also a theme that's going to show up, even just in Genesis, uh, repeatedly. So uh, again, when you come to Lot and, uh, and Abraham, and you have this, this almost uh, bargaining with God, if there are 10 righteous people, will you, will you keep the city from judgment? Well, you have a remnant here in Noah who is said to be righteous, and Noah and his family are brought through uh, the, the judgment of God. And that is seen, Noah's response here is pictured in Hebrews 11 as a picture of faith. Noah condemned the world, but was brought safely through the judgment uh, in the ark. This is an example of faith. So here are several things to, to think through. I mean, one of them is, the patience of this judgment. I mean, that's that's part of Jesus's point, uh, part of Simon Peter's point in talking about how it took a long time and it took a long time in such a way that it would bring ridicule upon Noah uh, for, for believing uh, God. I mean, and, and you can imagine this. I mean, think about the way that we tend to think about, um, oh, years ago, we had a woman that we knew who was insistent that uh, Y2K, most of you are too young to remember this, but uh, this was the idea that when the calendar turned from 1999 to the year 2000, that none of the computers would be able to make that change and that there would be this this shutdown across the board. It was going to lead to all sorts of apocalyptic things. We knew a woman who was storing up food, powder-dried food. She was doing all of these things because she was just certain that the year 2000 uh, was going to be the end of human civilization as we knew it. And, you know, people didn't make fun of her, but I think there were a lot of people who just sort of, bless her heart, you know? Well, you can imagine that, and that's the sort of reaction that people are having here, uh, I'm quite sure, to Noah. But God is patient, and Peter will talk about uh, that same reality now. And we'll say the reason that God is being patient is not because God is is ignoring anything that's going on. It's because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is God saying now is the day of salvation. And so you have Noah 
who is preaching a message of repentance, a message of repentance that is not being heard and is not being received. So you've got a a patience of judgment, and then you have the coming of the judgment and deliverance from it. So God gives to Noah the means to survive uh, this cataclysm that he's going to bring upon the world. And it's interesting, and Peter brings this up uh, later on, God creates the world out of water. So remember uh, Genesis 1-2, water, uh, the the earth is is formless and void, and the spirit is over the uh, the face of the deep, and God then separates out the, the land from the water. God creates the world from water and then destroys the world with water. So, what God is doing here is saving an individual, Noah, because of his faith, saving a family, the faithful line of Noah, but he's also saving the world because how does God do this? He starts with uh, this, this small remnant, and then from this remnant, he recreates a world. And that's the reason why you don't only have human beings sheltered here, but you have human beings who are bringing onto this uh, onto this lifeboat uh, animals, two of every unclean animal, seven of every clean animal, uh, so that you would have a new world on the other side of the flood. This is, God is essentially recapitulating Genesis 1 and 2 here. And as the the waters come upon the earth, you have this this massive devastation. And then the the scripture says that Noah, after this is, is over, wondering where the future is for him, he sends out a raven and the raven does not come back. Now, here's why this is significant. We, we don't think much about ravens, but ravens uh, play a big part in the biblical story in several places. Remember, ravens are the ones who are feeding Elijah in in the wilderness. Well, a raven is a scavenger. Uh, A raven eats carrion, eats uh, decaying flesh. And so in the same way that really ever since the plagues of the Middle Ages, there's a, a human revulsion with most people toward rats. Because you see a rat, it's not just that you're seeing a mammal of that size, because we see other mammals of that size. We see squirrels, we see, you know, other other things, ferrets, whatever. They don't give us that same sense of of dread that a rat does. It's because when you see a rat, you see potentially the carrier of a disease. You don't think that in your mind, but there's that automatic sort of uh, sort of reaction. So a a raven feeding Elijah in the wilderness is a turning of everything on its head because God is feeding, giving life out of death. And here, when the raven doesn't return, probably the reason for that is because there is still the the rotting and the decaying uh, out there. So, I mean, think of, uh, again, to go back to rats, uh, think of uh, Templeton in Charlotte's Web 
at uh, the state fair or the county. It was a state fair, county fair. He's in this uh, in this wonder world for a rat because there's just all this garbage and, and refuse everywhere that he can eat. Well, the same thing is true here with uh, the raven. The raven doesn't come back, so no one knows we don't have a safe place to go. But then Noah releases a dove, and the dove comes back with a, a piece of, of olive branch. What, what's happening here? The dove is picturing that there is life after judgment. A, a dove is not a scavenger. So the dove is bringing back and saying, there is dry land, and not just dry land, there is dry land, and there is fruitfulness that is there. Now, this is important because, again, remember that connection between this uh, flood and this judgment and baptism. And then remember the baptism of our Lord Jesus. There's a reason why when Jesus went and asked John to baptize him, that John's response was horror. Uh, I'm not going to baptize you. You should baptize me. Well, why? Because remember what John was saying. John was saying that judgment is coming. God is going to chop down uh, the, the, the tree of the house of Abraham, throw it into the fire, he says. This is God's judgment that is coming upon his people, upon humanity. And only those who are repentant are going to be delivered. So when people are coming to be baptized, what they're doing is agreeing with God that they have sinned against him and agreeing with God that they deserve to go under that judgment and then appealing to God for a good conscience, for deliverance from judgment and for cleansing. So when Jesus comes, somebody who is not a sinner and says, I want to identify myself in baptism, it doesn't make sense. I mean, there had to be a sense of disorientation to say, well, if you need this, then what hope is there for any of the rest of us? But of course, Jesus was identifying himself with the judgment of the world, not with his own sin, his own judgment, but with the judgment of the world. He's identifying himself with, as John says, the vipers uh, who who are warned to flee from the wrath to come. So he does this, which is why Jesus can talk about uh, later on the crucifixion and say, I have a baptism to undergo. And he uses his metaphor of fire, a baptism of fire. There's a, a kindling that is taking place. And I'm anxious until I, uh, uh, I undergo it. So Jesus here, as he's going under the judgment, in the same way that we see pictured here in Genesis, the world going under the judgment of water, coming out of that, and then just as the new creation of Genesis, what happens? A dove lights out upon it. A dove comes down upon him with the pronouncement, this is my beloved son, and with him I am well pleased. Jesus is the remnant. He's that start of the new creation, that pioneer of the new creation, that firstborn from the dead, the new humanity. And the spirit 
in the form of a dove comes upon him, which is saying there is hope for the future. There is hope for peace and reconciliation and wholeness, but it only goes through judgment. What we want to do is to pretend that judgment doesn't exist. And if we ignore judgment, then somehow we can evade it. That's not the way that we come to new life. We come to new life only through death, which is why Jesus says you must look to, just as as Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, you must look to the, the one who is crucified and you must take up your cross and follow me. You're, you're acknowledging, uh, I'm not hiding anything from God. God would be right to judge me for my sin. And God would be right to judge the world for its sin. But I'm in Christ. Therefore, I have already been through that judgment. I'm safely finding refuge within the ark of salvation in Jesus Christ. And when I walk out of it, on the other side of judgment, I'm walking into a whole new world. So this sort of uh, account ought to bring to us simultaneously a feeling of awe. Doesn't matter how normal life may seem, judgment is coming. And also a sense of hope. There is a gospel. There's good news for getting through judgment and getting through alive onto the other side. So it reminds me a lot of James Baldwin, writer. I've read a lot of his his work, did a, a little book that I appreciated called The Fire Next Time, where he's referring to an old song, God gave to Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, it's the fire next time. And that's true. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Cast or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details that you might have missed. We'll pick back up here in Genesis next time with another first word. This is Russell Moore Onward. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.